You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with the MACP, and this is session nine. Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast with me, Jack Chu, and I'm excited to launch session nine, which is the first of three commissioned podcasts by the Musculoskeletal Association of Chartered Physiotherapists, best known as the MACP. I've been incredibly fortunate to meet a huge number of excellent clinical minds in my career, and since the launch of this podcast, my exposure to such free thinkers has increased further. An organisation who quickly recognised my team's main clinical goal, which is to promote honest, evidence-based and patient-centred practice, was the MACP. For many years, the MACP have been recognised as the UK's premier special interest group for specialist manual therapists. But in 2011, in keeping with the evolution of clinical practice and the evidence base, the MACP redefined its M from manipulative to musculoskeletal. Regardless of names, opinions, history and connotations, the MACP consistently advocate critical thinking, evidence-based practice and profession promotion. And that doesn't sound dissimilar to the Physio Matters podcast way at all. The first podcast guest put forward by the MACP is Dr. Richard Bennett, who is a clinical psychologist and cognitive behavioural psychotherapist at the University of Birmingham. He also has a role teaching physios how best to integrate psychological therapies into practice. There's been a real increase in research linking the physiotherapy and psychology professions, but in keeping with the physio matters and, of course, MACP values, we want to see how that might best be interpreted and implemented in frontline clinical practice. So the podcast team did their homework, and I travelled down to Birmingham to give the first non-physiotherapist a chance behind our microphones. So let's get to it. Hi Richard, would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners? Yeah, so I'm Richard Bennett and uh, my day job, I'm a clinical psychologist in the NHS. Uh, I actually work in a a forensic mental health service. Um, But I suppose the reason that I'm here is that I'm also a cognitive behavioural psychotherapist. So um, I'm I'm accredited as as a CBT practitioner. Uh, And I'm also a senior academic tutor at the University of Birmingham, where my job is to run a CBT postgraduate diploma. So uh, that, what that diploma does is to train the folk who work in the uh, primary care mental health services delivering uh, CBT to people with anxiety and depression. Um, I also do a, a bunch of extra stuff, uh, kind of extracurricular activity, if you will, uh, in my independent practice, which involves um, independent therapy, um, provision of supervision. I work as an expert witness for the, the criminal and civil courts. Um, and... Uh, the relevant bit here again is that I, I do quite a bit of extra teaching and training and in that capacity I've, I've recently um, hooked up with a, a local physio, a guy called Jared Green who works for Harbourne Physio and we've been um, involved in training physiotherapists both in the UK and Ireland uh, in, the, in the use of psychological interventions um, in their, to, to integrate into their practice. So that's largely been... Um, the use of cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, um, but also motivational interviewing. So that's that's really the reason that I'm sitting in front of you today. Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm the first non-physiotherapist on the microphones for Physio Matters. Today I'm here in association with the MACP, and that's discussing, as you said, psychological interventions in physio. And it's, it's not that long ago it had seemed almost a bizarre statement that I'd be invited here today for that reason by the people that have been. What do you think has occurred or what is occurring that's made this an important topic and very pertinent topic now? Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I need to clear up one or two popular misconceptions if I'm the first non-physio. So I, so I don't have a couch <laughs> and I'm not able to read your mind. Right. Um, so uh, if we can kind of we can proceed on that basis. Um, I think that there's, there's t- two two levels at which I'd like to answer this question I suppose and I think at, at one level I'd like to say that nothing new is happening really because there's, there's a couple of things that have always been true um, so I mean what strikes me about physiotherapy is it's such an intimate practice um, the, the, the proximity that, you know both 
literally and kind of metaphorically that you have with your clients is, is such that I think it's a context in which people will readily share their internal world quite freely. Um, so a number of physiotherapists have said to me in the past that they're, they're often in situations whereby um, because of the intimacy of what they're doing, people just tell them things. You know, they, they, they open up and they start talking about their, their concerns and their anxieties and, and their mood. Um, and... I hope I'm not doing the professional disservice, but many people have said that they they kind of feel a little underprepared for how to deal with those things. So so I think that's always been there. Um, the other thing that I think has always been true is this this notion of yellow flags. So so there you know there are psychological factors that that prevent people from recovering fully in relation to the you know, the physical difficulties that they have or in dealing well with the situations that they can't recover from. So if we're thinking about things like um, you know, chronic pain, for example, that's, it's possibly something that's never going to go away. Um, and so patients are in this position of having to you know, try and make progress with regard to their physiotherapy, but there are psychological factors which are, are become an obstacle to that because it's a, you know, it's, it's a complicated and, and stressful situation that they're in. And I think similarly, um, what many physios have said to me is they, that they feel like they could be more skilled um, perhaps in, in dealing with those, those factors when they, when they present themselves. So that's the first part of this long-winded answer to, to your question. But I think at, at, at another level, I think something new is, is happening. Um, and that is that there's a you know, a recognition of the first thing, I think, that is becoming more kind of openly recognised that, yeah. that those things are indeed the case. That, um, that physical intervention on its own um, is, is perhaps not all it could be and, and that, that the efficacy of a physiotherapist could be enhanced by integrating psychological theory and practice. Um, I, I was struck actually listening to one of the previous podcasts with Adam Meekins, and he, he mentioned that the, this, this notion of the amount of time it takes for an idea to um, kind of percolate and, and, and reach the mainstream. Yeah. And so whilst, I mean, CBT, if we take CBT just as one example, is, is, is relatively new. I mean, it's only been around... Um, in its infancy since the 60s and in the mainstream perhaps since the 80s and that's in mental health so if we're thinking you know the amount of time that that idea might take to translate from mental health care into physical health care you know it feels like we're we're still charting relatively new territory so I think that's that's the that's the new thing so um it doesn't feel bizarre to me to to be here talking to you um because I think there's a real, there's a real relevance to, to the world of psychology um, in terms of its relationship to the world of physiotherapy. Absolutely, and I think I think they've hit the nail on the head in terms of it's it's almost a shame that it would be considered new. The fact that sometimes there has been this separation for us to, as physiotherapists to not consider the the whole psychological being and the context around that. So I know from from my own experience and also from from regular discussion with multi different multiple different professions that. There's times that professions can be protective of, shall we say, their clinical turf, especially when it comes to certain interventions. And as a psychologist, are we somewhat treading on your toes when we integrate more psychological consideration into our reasoning and then our treatment? It's, it's an interesting question, and I think it's probably something about which there would be a range of opinion if you um, surveyed psychologists. Um, psychology can unfortunately be at somewhat ivory towerish discipline at times and I think there are some psychologists who, who don't want anyone who isn't a psychologist delivering anything psychological okay if that's not too many uses of <laughs> no, psychology in one sense but um and I think there's an interesting thing happening at the moment in in the provision of NHS services so the the course that I run here which is training people to deliver psychological interventions in primary care. I mean, most of those people that I'm training aren't psychologists. You know, they're, they're people from other kinds of backgrounds, for example, nursing, social work, occupational therapy, um, who are training to be CBT therapists. So, so I think one of the things that's, that's, a, that's a current factor is that the provision of psychological interventions is becoming much more diversified. Um, and I... 
in my view, and you know, this is only my view, but I think that's a very good thing because I've, I've no interest in building walled gardens, if, if you like, where you know you, only certain people are allowed in or only certain people are allowed access to certain mm. bits of knowledge. Because um, I kind of think if you know if you found something really useful that could bring relief to lots of people, what you know, why would you keep it secret or why would you limit it to the chosen few? You know, I, I would be happy if we wound the clock forward a few years and, and, and all physiotherapists were much more kind of psychologically informed because I think it would be a more rewarding experience for them. And I think, and, and again, if, with reference to the evidence about what it is that stands in the way of people's effective recovery, um, I think it's going to be in the interests of, of patients. No, great, great stuff. And I mean, by the vast majority, there's a consensus that the use of psychological interventions as physios should be embraced on a number of levels. But I've, as I've personally delved into the types and styles over the last few years of my own practice, I can understand why it can be considered a, a muddy swamp, particularly filled with acronyms. I mean, CBT, NLP, ACT, MI, DBT, I mean, I could go on. I mean, they're the ones that I've personally been exposed and somewhat trained in. Is, is this intimidating swamp realistic or is it an overcomplication of your own trade? Well, I, I guess, again, in the interests of demystifying psychology, it's, it's no different from any other industry, really. So, so psychology and um, psychological therapy... It, you know, if you want to make a name for yourself in it, you you don't do that just by repeating what someone else has previously done. You know, yeah. you, you do that by changing things, adding something different, giving it a new brand label, and you know, developing your own brand of treatment. So, to a certain extent, there's a there's a there's a, a game being played with regard to empire okay. building. Um, but you know, there are there are lots of different ways to look at the same problem so in in psychology there are various different schools of thought as, as I'm sure there are in, in physiotherapy Absolutely. about how you might go about delivering the core business which I would see as sort of increasing psychological understanding and reducing psychological distress there are lots of different approaches to that um, and you know, I can see how that might seem very hard to navigate, um, and it might seem quite intimidating for people that don't understand it. And, and I guess if I were a physio with an awareness that I wanted to increase my psychological knowledge, I probably wouldn't know where to start, yeah. because there's so much um, stuff out there. And in a, I suppose, in a profession that kind of prides itself on scientific integrity having lots of different explanations for the same thing isn't really a, <laughs> isn't really a great position to have because um, it, it makes it very difficult for people to try and work their way through it I'm, I'm kind of struck in, in, in answering your question by something that one of the people in psychology that I very much look up to once said this is a guy called David Barlow who's a cognitive behaviour therapist and has been through the whole thing you know right from the the implementation of behavioural therapy in the in the 1950s to to the what we'll probably talk about later third wave CBT interventions now um, and he said recently that you know in the future we just won't be talking about models of therapy we'll only be talking about evidence-based practice Right. You know, that will really be the only question. Not what's this called or, you know, how does it work? It just does it work. And, and I think that in the context of that, there are certain um, things that are coming to the fore. So, so my advice to physiotherapists wanting to become more interested in psychological intervention would be to just focus on the evidence base. Um, and most evidence in, in physical health care comes from the, the, the cognitive behavioural school it is very possible to get completely distracted by um, a particular brand and I'm always slightly suspicious of people who absolutely nail their colours to one particular mast um, because I think when you do that it perhaps blinkers you to, to the fact that other things might be coming up on the horizon that, that are useful. I mean, speaking about myself and my, my practice, I'm, I'm really only interested in the things that have been shown to be effective. Um, because I think, because you know, I'm a taxpayer, and, and I think that <laughs> if, if we're going to be providing services on the NHS, for example, I, I think it's it's there's a duty for us to to think about 
provision of things that have shown to be been shown to be effective. If I was a if I was a, a patient, you know, and I have been, and I'm sure I will be in the future. If if I had to choose between something that has been shown to work or something that may well work, but we don't know whether it does or not, you know, to me that's a no-brainer. You know, I'm always going to pick the first option. So I, th- I think people can get distracted by by brand names and and celebrity and all of those kinds of things. Um, and um, it's it's why I think you know Adam Meekins when he spoke to you made some really interesting points about critical thinking that it's a really important uh, skill to have that you can you can interrogate the evidence base and and then you can choose for yourself what seems like it's been effective in the past and then you can choose to then integrate that into your practice absolutely no that, that, and that's a great point and before we get into certain styles and interventions it is worth acknowledging that at an msk clinic level um for various reasons patients can sometimes become a bit disgruntled by the fact that we as physios might use psychological interventions and so is helping a patient to understand the place for these techniques and for the place for professionals like you a good place to start shall we say yeah it's i think that's something where one also might reasonably expect a range of responses um you know if i get what you're saying if you approach a a patient from a psychological perspective that might not be something that they're expecting um and their response to that is likely to depend on their you know their worldview it's it's precisely the same issue in in psychological intervention in mental health care so that you know there are some people who really are interested in engaging in a psychological intervention you know there are other people who just want to take medication you know so if if there's a choice between 12 sessions of cbt or taking an antidepressant you know there are some people who will take the antidepressant you know it's much easier yeah there's not much effort involved in sticking a pill into your mouth and engaging in 12 sessions of cbt on the other hand is a much more effortful endeavor um and so there are people that will have different um, sort of frames of reference for what they think is going to work and there and then people that have very different approaches to the amount of effort that they want to put in in terms of uh ameliorating their their difficulty so i mean i think there are going to be some people that will embrace anything that will help them to recover you know some people are so uh, desperately distressed by their current experience that whatever you do will be well received um there are some people that just because it it chimes with where they come from and how they see the world that they'll embrace a psychological approach equally i think you have to be uh, prepared for the fact there's some people who just run a mile you know Mm. um either because that's just who they are. You know, they, they'd run a mile from anything um, touchy-feely, okay. for want of a better expression. Right. And, and some because it's not what they signed up to. You know, they, go, they went to see a physiotherapist and here you are talking to them about their thoughts and their feelings. That they <laughs> okay. might think, what's going on here? You know? yeah. um, I think there's also an issue that... You know, the, the psychological and mental health side of our suffering is is somewhat misunderstood still um and i think there is a reluctance on the part of some patients and probably some physios as well that anything that's not in the apparently physical world is therefore not real um Mm. if that if that makes sense it does yeah um there's a there's a great quote from um it's from harry potter actually it's it's uh the the headmaster of the school, Albus Dumbledore, he says to he says to Harry, um, "Of course, it's happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it's not real?" Which I think is a is a really interesting uh, quote. If we consider our experience in, you know, in the whole, then we we you know we contact the world in a number of different ways, you know, physically and through our senses, but but psychologically through our interpretation of what what happens and through our application of language um so whilst this might we might be getting a bit philosophical here i I think there is a there's a real issue that any any situation that somebody's in and, and if if they're in a situation that that requires them to go and see a physiotherapist that situation is going to comprise of a number of different uh variables um, and just because you can't see some of those variables doesn't mean that they're not they don't exist or they're not real or they're not having a, a huge bearing on the on the situation. Um, and I kind of think that as physiotherapists, it's probably 
um, you probably have a duty to inform people that, that the physical side of things is really only half the story. Um, and if I, could, if I can quote someone else, uh, Gordon Waddell in his book um, Back Pain Revolution um, made the point that cognitive and behavioural risk factors are, are more important than physical risk factors in, in predicting the development of low back pain related disability. So it, it just feels to me that the psychological factors are clearly part of the problem and that's been shown over and over again in the, in the, in the literature. And therefore, psychological interventions should probably equally clearly be part of the solution. Yes. Um, and, you know, and a biomedical model on its own just doesn't cut it. And, and I think that uh, we probably have a duty to inform patients that that's, you know, that's just how it is. You know? And yeah. probably we should tell them that from the off. So, mm. so in short, uh, yes. So could we go into explaining some of the differences and similarities between the techniques that I mentioned earlier and also others in the industry that I might not have said? Yeah, I mean, this, this could be a very, very long answer. So <laughs> I think in, in the interest of keeping the, the listener um, awake, it, it might be best to kind of focus it. I, I think perhaps I'd like to talk about three things, if yeah, that's okay. Um, motivational interviewing. Um, cognitive behaviour therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and, and again my choice of those is, is guided by the, the evidence base for those interventions in physiotherapy if, that, if that's alright please do yeah so I'll start with motivational interviewing um, th- this is it's a psychological approach which is aimed at helping people to get to the point where, where they make a decision to change because they want to so it's it's about helping them to to facilitate their own uh, change that comes from, that's internally driven rather than externally driven. Um, if I might use smoking cessation as an example, I mean, if you th- if one thinks about smoking, it's kind of it, it, you know, cigarettes are a, a consumer product that, that kill half of their consumers you know it's it's insane that it's it's <laughs> legal um but most people know that most people who choose to smoke know that and they and they know that there are various physical health risks associated with it yet they continue to smoke um so one might imagine that a useful intervention for smoking cessation would be to tell people about all the dangers um but that's generally shown to be pretty ineffective Mm. um, because people know it already and so what what the theoretical background to motivational interviewing assumes is that most people when they are faced with a a potential change situation are in possession of knowledge and um, attitude in both directions they they in in short they're ambivalent they have some something that tells them Change and something that tells them stay the same, and that the reason they perhaps haven't made moves in a change direction is just because they've not resolved that ambivalence yet. So motivational interviewing is is a is a technique to help people facilitate talking about the uh, the the change part of that that kind of balance, and then to help and to use that to mobilise their internal motivation to you know, to help them change and to, and to translate that internal motivation into some kind of goal-directed action. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in my view, and you know, this is uh, other views are available. <laughs> uh, that I think a, a course on motivational interviewing should be should be week one of of any health-related professional training. So if you're a physiotherapist, you you know, it would be very helpful if people did that before they did anything else. Because you could be the most um, skilled physiotherapist in the world, but if, if, the, if the patient is not in a position where they want to make use of what you have to offer, then you know, you're wasting your time. So a skill that helps you mobilise the client's own sort of internal motivation to make change, uh, I think is a, is a hugely useful skill. Um, there's an old joke in, in psychology, if, you, if you'd indulge me for a second, but it, it, it's how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is one, but the, but the light bulb's got to want to change. 
<laughs> you know, and it's it's a joke and it's it's old and it's cliche, but there's a, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, that people are people will only go where they want to go. Really, you can't make people do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what I've and I hope I don't mean to sound at all disparaging, but what what I've noticed in some of the experiential exercise I use in my training courses with physios is that they're incredibly good at giving advice. Um, <laughs> and so, if we do an exercise whereby they are asked to just you know ask questions, um, elicit information from a, from the other person engaged in the role play, within about thirty seconds they'll be giving advice (laughs) and it'll be very well-meaning advice and it'll be you know if you tried this you should do this why don't you try doing that um you know and that's great and and i'm not trying to say there's no place for advice but i think there's also a place for just eliciting information from people and exploring their motivation um before you hit them with the advice i think i've heard i think it rings a bell from a course i went on that that is that a curative reflex almost that people almost have this burning desire to express advice on people if they if they feel they have it well yeah you know without getting without sounding too much like a psychologist i guess we all have our own reasons for why we entered the profession that we entered and uh, if you found yourself in a health related profession it's probably because you have a kind of quite a strong motivation to want to help people get better okay yeah. and if you're in possession yeah. of knowledge that you think is going to help them then it seems intuitively reasonable to tell them that knowledge yeah. and, and then tell them what they do need to do in order to, to change mm-hmm. however um you know if, if if for example you wanted to give up smoking and i just hit you with a load of facts about why you should do it i would there's a fair chance that you're going to become quite disengaged from that process quite quickly mm. um if I sat here and, and spoke to you about why you wanted to change and maybe what reasons there were for you changing, if I asked you how you thought you might be better off, if I asked you what steps you'd already taken in that direction, there's a, I would say there's a fair chance that that would be a much more engaging conversation and, mm. and that, that that would create the context for, for me to perhaps give you some advice a bit later on down the line. Fantastic. And on motivational interviewing then, uh, just, to, just to try and share a, a bit of my experience with it, um, is one of the most powerful things it did for me was to try and help me to understand the position and place that someone was in, in terms of readiness for change. It also helped me to then not, not almost burn out by this advice giving to people that might not accept it and, and, and tailor my interventions for people that were ready. Do you think that's something that, not just for physiotherapists, but all healthcare professionals, knowing when to pitch what is part of that motivational interviewing skill? Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's not an easy skill to develop I think I certainly feel like I'm still learning that mm. after after yeah. many years of, of practice as a psychologist um, but a- assessing people's readiness and and pitching things at, pitching the right thing at the right time is, is, is definitely a, a really key skill to have but, but as I say not an easy one to, to, to develop an old boss of mine used to say it might only take six sessions to really turn somebody's life around, but you may well have to wait six years for that opportunity. Um, and that's, you know, that's an important wow. point. Wow, yeah. And, and so that, that's the thing. And if you were to constantly feel like you were hitting your head against a brick wall, it would burn you out, disinterest you as a, as a therapist and certainly as a patient. So that's a great point. And so, if, and obviously it is a seamless link into, into, into CBT, but would you say there are any textbook differences between motivational interview and then into CBT? There are differences, yeah. I, th- I think that motivational interviewing is, is best viewed as a, as, a, as a component of treatment that facilitates the treatment, if, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. So I use motivational interviewing as part of, of CBT. So it's kind of the first thing that, we, that, we, that I might do with a, with a, a client um, to explore with them whether or not they want to engage in CBT. Mm-hmm. Um, and to perhaps go through the, the pros and cons of that process with with somebody. So there's a pre-CBT intervention almost. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think there there are some recent going back to David Barlow. He's just come up with a, a protocol for working in mental health around um, prime kind of primary care mental health issues such as anxiety and depression. Uh, and this is based on 
a long period of research trying to identify what are the active ingredients of CBT. And module one, you know, surprise, surprise, is a motivational interviewing module. <laughs> yeah. it, it just seems intuitively sensible, and now the data backs it up that that's where you start with people. You, you explore whether or not they're in the right place psychologically to, to benefit from this intervention and, and, and I see no reason why that doesn't apply equally to physiotherapy yeah I, I mean I, 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 every podcast I seem to digress into metaphors but I, I know I've discussed before it's about finding base camp sometimes and without finding that where, you know, where's the journey going um, with the, the third thing that we, we, we mentioned uh, of, of those three main ones, and I'll be honest, they would probably be the three most pertinent and most, as you said, evidence-based, especially in, in physiotherapy, is, is ACT would be the third one. Um, where, where's, that, where's that maybe come from? Is that more, I've, I've heard of it more recently, or is that my own previous ignorance? Is, that, is it more recent? No, it is more recent, yeah. Um, if I could talk about CBT and explain in terms of the historical development where where act comes from yeah yeah that might make more Perfect, sense to, yeah, to yeah. the listener because it is a much more recent development mm-hmm. um, so if we, if we can maybe move on to cbt i mean it, people often think that cbt is is a thing you know cognitive behavior therapy is one thing and and it's 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 not really it's a, it's a school of thought um, and cbt is best thought of as an umbrella term to describe a, a range of interventions um, all of which have tried to, you know, wrestle with this this core question about how do we alleviate psychological distress for people. Um, it's best thought of as being something that that kind of consists of three waves or three phases, and it's often talked about in terms of waves. So the first wave is is behavioural intervention. So this would going back on a little history tour, people may have heard of people people like Pavlov. Um, so Pavlov's dog, people often know about. So, so what Pavlov was interested in was trying to understand why people had phobic responses. So, so why were people scared of things that weren't um, weren't scary, right. essentially? Uh, so why do people have spider phobia, for example? Yeah. Um, and he was he was interested in looking at um, what happens when two stimuli get paired together. So his famous dog experiment was was that he. Uh, he would feed his dog and at the same time he would ring a little bell and what he noticed was after a while that he only needed to ring the bell and the dog would start to salivate as if the food were present when it wasn't actually present. So the dog had had associated these two stimuli um, and it would respond to the second one as if the first one were present, Mm -hmm. which helped him to understand why people become fearful. So if we think about... um, chronic pain for example uh, I guess many physios have been in a situation whereby they've perhaps suggested an exercise to somebody and immediately that person has become anxious um, you know they, they've not actually done the exercise you've only been talking about it but but the anxiety is present mm-hmm. as, as if the exercise were being done um, and that's because people have paired those stimuli they've paired pain and anxiety together and, and merely talking about a situation where pain might be present brings anxiety to the fore. Mm-hmm. So, so that, was, that was where CBT kind of started in this very, very behavioural understanding of if this happens and this happens at the same time, then we get an emotional response. Um, that, that school of thought was taken further by, mainly by a guy called Skinner, who um, is responsible for a theory that we, we call operant conditioning, which is all about reinforcement. So the idea that certain behaviors will increase in frequency if they're if if they're followed by something that's reinforcing so if i can explain that very simply if if um if you punched me in the face and i straight away gave you 10 pounds there's a fair chance that you might punch me in the face again (laughs) um you know if on the other hand uh you punched me in the face and I, i took you down with a bunch of high skilled karate moves maybe later not in front of the expensive equipment please <laughs> yeah. Richard but alright you'd probably you'd probably think twice about punching yeah, me in the face absolutely again, you know so it's, it's very simple and um, it's just the idea that behaviours increase if they're rewarded and, uh, and they decrease if they're punished uh, so that work uh, feeds very much into, into, into modern CBT and thinking about um, 
why certain behaviours are maintained. Mm. So there, there might be certain things that are going on in a person's life which we would look at and think, well, why, do, why are they still doing that? But, but usually if, if someone's continuing to do something, it's because it's being, re, it's being reinforced somehow. Mm-hmm. And I guess in, in coming back to physiotherapy, there are probably examples where people uh, don't do the things that you've recommended them to do. Mm-hmm. So you know you that you see them, you suggest to them if you do this, you know good things will happen, um, but they don't do them. You know, so it, which is kind of curious. Why wouldn't you do something that's going to make you better? Mm. But there may be very other important reinforcing factors in that person's environment, which means that actually it, it's not in their interests. So, for example, if you have a person who um, gets something out of being dependent. So if, if they have a relative that runs around after them doing everything for them, that it's not really in their interest to become more independent. Yes. Um, it's because they find the, the, maybe the attention or the nurturance or the care they get from somebody else very reinforcing. So, so they don't then take steps to becoming more independent. Often without them realising that as well. That it's, not, it's not always a conscious thought process that goes on there is it yeah that's right we we don't want to paint people as being kind of openly manipulative it's just that that we are a all of our behaviors exist within our context within our you know our environmental context and uh yeah sometimes we're not we're not aware of those links so there's that work um but but then what happened next so the second wave of cbt or what's sometimes called the cognitive revolution was was really based on the, the notion that um you might have the same stimulus um, but it produces different results in two different people mm-hmm. so uh, if to take something that's kind of not close to my heart if we if we started to play a Mariah Carey track in here you know I, okay. would, I would quickly leave the room maybe you wouldn't you know the same sti- the, the same stimulus does not affect people in the same way and and equally um, you know there may there may come a time in my life where I, I openly welcome listening to Mariah Carey you know so so people change their minds over time so the same stimulus for the same individual at different times produces different responses and interesting that in our brief meeting you've branded me a Mariah Carey fan as well Richard there's (laughs) an interesting psychology behind that maybe well you know I'm I'm doing my thing (laughs) manipulating you in various ways that that won't become fully apparent to you till weeks later maybe Um, the notion there was that there must be something else going on there must be another mediating variable so so cognitive the cognitive side of CBT is really just the notion that it's not people aren't distressed by things they're distressed by the view that they take of things and we we know that to be true because if you look at uh, I don't know a bunch of people that experience a natural disaster for example some of them will really struggle psychologically others of them won't they've been through exactly the same process but the way that they appraise it is different and that has a, an influence on the way they feel and the way they behave so what the what the the work of the the cognitive theorists um and the the, the names there that people might be familiar with are, are albert ellis and aaron beck particularly what that brought to the table was this this notion that uh, there's a mediating variable. So we can we can change the way we feel about things by by scrutinising the way we think about things. So um, there's this relationship, this reciprocal relationship between thoughts, emotions, and behaviours, and phys- and physiology. Uh, that's very pertinent to uh, physiotherapy. I, I note that people talk very much about this concept fear avoidance it's it, before i started getting into the physio work i, I wasn't familiar with that term but right. but what that term does is is to link these two things together so you know where you have anxiety you tend to have avoidance it's it's the it's the action tendency if you like of anxiety to to avoid things you know, yeah. if you're scared of spiders don't go down the garden it's 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 kind of intuitive link um so so that's what um, the cognitive theorists brought to us. And it's, it's often phrased in terms of an ABC model. So right. there's, there's an A, there's an activating event. Uh, there's, a B, there's B, there's a belief about that activating event. And it's, it's B that shapes C, the consequence. Uh, okay. So the, the emotional consequence, the um, behavioural consequence. And so cognitive 
behavioural therapists are very interested in this content of B. So what, what is it that people think? What is it that people believe about the situation that they're in? Um, and understanding that is really key to understanding their, their distress. So this is a very recent development. So there are a bunch of what are referred to as third wave uh, CBT therapies. Um, and what it's a kind of difficult thing to explain, but the, the, this ABC model, what it really points you towards is if you can change B, then you might be better off in terms of, of your distress. So, for example, if, if you um, have chronic pain and what you tell yourself about that chronic pain is that I shouldn't have it, you know, it's unfair, um, I shouldn't have been put in this situation... Uh, it's awful, you know, and you have kind of catastrophic views about it, or you tell yourself that you can't stand it, or you tell yourself that you're somehow less of a person because you're suffering from this and other people aren't, or you're, you know, you're never going to be the person you used to be. You know, if you believe those kinds of things, that that's pretty much a recipe for for distress. Mm -hmm. In comparison to someone else who might believe, you know, I I would really like for this not to be the case but it is the case um, it's bad but it's not awful it's not the worst thing that could ever happen to me mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to bear but I can bear it and it doesn't diminish my worth as a person that I'm not able to do some of the other things I used to do you know there are there are there are new things that I could do perhaps you know that person is likely to be better off in terms of their their approach to their physiotherapy and you know I would I would hazard a guess that person's probably likely to recover that's certainly more where, certainly where the physiotherapy evidence points to yeah, yeah in terms of outcome yeah so that kind of second wave cbt notion would be would be that well let's change people's thinking so let, let's try and identify what the problematic thoughts are and let's devote some attention to trying to change them change those thoughts into more kind of adaptive thoughts yeah um so what but what the third wave takes a different view so it's not trying to change the content of people's thoughts it's it's similar so they would agree with the abc formulation yeah. largely um but the the intervention would be different. So they're not trying to change the difficult thoughts. They're trying to encourage people to become more aware of them, but to be more accepting of them. And to, if you like, change their relationship with the thought rather than change the thought itself. Okay. So I think that the, one of the notions that's important here is that if, if, you, if you start to label something as bad, so that's a bad thought or that's a negative thought, um, you're starting to describe it as a symptom and then you're, the, the inference there is that that's, that's, so there's kind of something wrong with you and that you should be getting rid of that. Um, and the third wave people, they're not comfortable with that notion. Okay. That, that what they would believe is that that's quite a normal thing, really. Right. That if you're in a very difficult situation, it's a, there's a fair chance that negative thoughts will will come to the fore. However, you don't need to let those thoughts run your life. You know, right. there, there may be a way that you can notice that those thoughts are present, uh, but just become more accepting of those thoughts, but decide not to not to listen to them. And that will then influence the output, the consequence. Yes. Right. Yeah. So. If we could have an example, maybe um, let's take that same person who has lots of negative thoughts about um, their physiotherapy intervention. Yeah. Uh, the the third wave approach would be to to encourage people to to become more aware of of what they what they think and what they believe about their situation. But you know, let's say you have a thought that says, "I can't do my exercises because they're going to hurt." Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, the alternative to that might be, you know, I can do my exercises and they're not going to hurt, but actually that, that might not be true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't hold the line. You know, so okay. maybe, maybe you, going back to that second wave CBT notion, maybe there's not much mileage in trying to challenge that thought because it mm -hmm. might be true. Okay. Um, so, you know, if I do these exercises, they're going to hurt like hell. Um, maybe they will. But... 
if you if you let that thought run your life, then you're not going to do the exercises, you're not going to um, make improvements in your physical condition, and other things that you might want to do in life are, are kind of getting further away. So maybe you could do them. Maybe you could learn to tolerate the, the discomfort um, and kind of you know work your way through it, and 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 still take steps in your you know in your valued direction. Okay. So there's a difference um, in terms of trying to achieve the same aim, but trying to, to do it in a different way. So not changing the thought, but changing your relationship to the thought. And where's the evidence swung in those two, those two things? Well, we're in somewhat new territory. Um, I mean, if we take uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, referred to as ACT, uh, the first ACT textbook came out in 1999, so where are we now? 15 years mm-hmm. on from there. Um, there are something like 75 randomised controlled trials as of now um, okay. that's, that support the use of ACT across a whole range of different conditions. And a number of those uh, relate to chronic pain. So in the US, um, they have a slightly different concept. We have nice guidance here. In the US, there's this notion of uh, empirically supported treatments. Yeah. And ACT is on the list of empirically supported treatments for the treatment of depression and chronic pain. Right. And uh, it's, it's approaching that kind of significance for, for the treatment of some other conditions too. Um, so I think the most established evidence is for CBT, you know, that mm-hmm. more traditional second wave way of working with things. Yeah. Um, you know, challenging, looking for the evidence for thoughts and trying to challenge ones that aren't helpful. But um, ACT is coming up fast on the outside. Okay. Um, so I can envisage a, p- a position quite soon where those two different approaches to the same um, question will be will be viewed as having more or less equal efficacy. Right. And has there been? Um Side by side RCT, uh, I hate the term battle in research, but has there been good quality studies comparing those two interventions uh, in which there's been a significant difference between them? That, there's, that's, that kind of work is starting to be done, but I, I wouldn't feel confident about giving you any clear um, answers to the question as of, as of now. I think that that's, that's something that will unfold. Right. Okay. So the, yeah, that's the, that's, that's ongoing. It's not being actively yeah. avoided then, because no, sometimes no, no. The, those things that have such similarities, sometimes yeah. people struggle to put them against each other. Shall we say? Yeah. Now there are one of the one of the good things I think about both CBT and ACT is that the the, the people the proponents of it are very much aware of the uh, the need to establish evidence. Okay. You know, there are some other psychological therapies where where that that kind of scientific approach is much less stressed, but with regard to CBT and, and, and ACT, well, well, you know, ACT really is a CBT. It's, mm. it's within that umbrella. Yeah, of course. Um, there's, a, there's a real drive to try and work out, not only are these things effective, but do they work for the reasons they're supposed to work? So there's lots of mediation analysis, for example, yeah, um, yeah. in looking at, can we say that the outcome is due to the variables that we think we're targeting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that mechanism of effect that, that often is the, the very tricky thing. Yeah. The view that, that dominates ACT is that human suffering is, is normal, really. And that might be very disappointing to listen to. But if you know someone that's never experienced psychological distress, you know, that's never been anxious or never been unhappy, then you know, I'd quite like to meet them. Mm. because I I want to know what the secret is Uh, it seems that that for most people you know a range of emotional experiences is is natural so people will vacillate between feeling happy sad anxious angry yeah you know and and that human distress is is an, is an is a, you know it's a part of normal functioning and it's it's facilitated by our use of language and our and human cognition so we you know we're kind of unique in the in the animal kingdom in terms of our ability to attach meaning to things mm-hmm. um, 
And that's a good thing, uh, very helpful, and it's probably helped us to establish our dominant position on the planet. But it's a double-edged sword in that it, it also means we can attach distressing meaning to pretty much anything. So we have this ability to distress ourselves about pretty much anything. Um, yeah. And that's just, it's, it's normal. Um, but that we can, you know, we can, if we can learn to become more accepting of that, and, and learn to, to to learn not to let this sort of constant um, mindy self-talk that yeah. goes on, in, not to let that run our lives, and and to to try and contact the world and and use our direct experience as information rather than what our mind is telling us. Mm-hmm. If I give you an example, I'm working with someone at the moment who has a has a problem around social anxiety. So, okay. if this person goes into a room. You know that that that's them going into a room of people. You know that that's that's what's true about it if, in terms of the the physical world. But if she goes into a room full of people, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that comes that comes along with that. So what happens to her is that she'll experience a lot of thoughts that these people are going to judge you. Um, they're going to look at what you're wearing. They're going to look at how your hair is. They're going to make all sorts of negative judgments about you, and they're going to find you wanting. You know, yeah. so she can't contact that experience as it is. She contacts that experience as her mind tells her it is. Yeah. Um, and as a consequence, she, you know, she doesn't socialise and she misses out a lot. Okay. Um, so the work there is about just trying to notice that those thoughts are present, but not letting them dictate to her. Okay, and that's the middle ground then, isn't it? That that acceptance almost on our level um, as, as therapists that that's normal. It's a scary phrase to use sometimes, but helping people to embrace the fact that the, this is a, within the realms of, of normal and it's about adjusting around yeah. that. Yeah. The, the, the other idea that comes along with that is that it's not, it's not that that's the enemy. You know? mm. So it's not... It's not pain for example that's the enemy it's the struggle with pain that's that's more likely to get you into trouble mm-hmm. so so trying to escape from your internal experience is generally not associated with good outcomes mm-hmm. so people who invest a lot of energy to try and not feel pain or to not be anxious mm-hmm. it generally doesn't work out well for people because what what they're doing kind of counterintuitively is that they're putting their pain front and centre that they're making that the focus of their life or they're putting their anxiety centre stage and and that's the focus of everything so in trying not to be anxious you make yourself anxious of course and and that's uh, often discussed on various podcasts we've had where people that uh, are um, spending a lot of time and money seeking therapeutic curative action um, and, and that again heightens that sense of Mm. putting that at the forefront so Mm. a a great point and ideally without me having to embrace role play shall we say uh, can you give examples of common roadblocks or bumps in the road shall we say during a a rehab journey and what tips could you give our listeners for overcoming them well I think going back to what I was saying earlier I think motivation is is a key psychological factor you know that that ebbs and flows um, so I think one it's very important to assess motivation and to pay attention to motivation early on in, in, in treatment that's, that's one thing that's relatively easy to, to do that you, mm-hmm. when you assess somebody you're not just assessing their problem but you're assessing their suitability for the intervention preempting the, the bump in the road uh, absolutely yeah and then you can if you've if you've done that you can then uh, you know, navigate a path around it, perhaps. Yeah. So I think motivational interviewing is a very useful skill there yeah. with regard to that. Um, and short of that, I think what, what's often referred to as a Socratic style is very useful. So one where you're, you're trying to... It's you know, based on the idea that most people kind of... They have some of the answers themselves yeah. in terms of what's best for them in their particular situation um, and helping them to to discover what's workable for them in their lives. That, that's really helpful in terms of uh, keeping motivation. And we, yeah, we, we can't learn from patients until we can get them to tell us things. So yeah. absolutely. No, that, that's a, a great point. The, the thing I often say to, to my uh, clients is that, that I, you know, they're the expert really, not me. Mm. Um, 
they know more about them than I'm ever going to know. You know? Yeah. I, I know some stuff about psychology and hopefully we can put those two things together in a way that's helpful. But, but when it comes to what's best for them, they know more than yeah. I do. Yeah, absolutely. Which is sometimes difficult for them to understand as well when they, when they come to someone who, seeking expert advice. For that to be turned, sometimes it, it, can, it can threaten in itself. But as we've discussed, there's a number of ways around it. And I, I completely agree. The preemptive strategy of trying to identify the roadblocks before that they're there is, is a great way to start. Mm-hmm. And um, I, would it be fair for me to say there's, there's an argument that's... Especially in physiotherapy, uh, partly because of our historical, more biomedical um, ethos, in that talking therapists can sometimes shy away from saying it as it is, okay, and and being a bit warm and fluffy. Um, and, And sometimes... I must admit my own bias and say my experience is it does exactly the opposite. Um, but, but if you were to coax both the questions and the answers from the patient, it can be helpful. Do you think, it's, do you think we do talk around the issue if we're not careful? Um, and and are, we, are we shying away from saying the harsh reality? Mm. I think that this is an interesting thing. I wasn't sure that I agreed with the premise of the opening part of it. Um, because I think some people can see talking therapy as kind of like a soft option. So um, if we talk about this, it will we can, you know, that will prevent us doing some real work. <laughs> yeah. But I just, I, I just don't think that's the case. I think if you talk about the psychological aspects of a problem, um, you, you're what you're doing is promoting an honest exploration of the reality and some of the reality won't be very pleasant so I, I don't think it's a soft option I, you, know, yeah. you, you ask anyone that's been through psychological therapy um, how easy that was you know, they'll, you know, most of them will tell you that's pretty, it's pretty difficult mm. so once you start opening up some of these issues you know, about, so you might see someone who's anxious about doing some exercises um, you start talking to them about that it may well be that it's not just the exercises they're anxious about yeah it's it's a kind of a personality style and there's all sorts of areas where they struggle um so it's but you know it's it's not an easy option there's a, there's a saying that i use quite a lot it's funny that i'm talking to physio but therapy is not a massage <laughs> you know it's hard work and it's not necessarily meant to feel nice yeah um where i think that some people who learn about psychological interventions can get a little unstuck is that they can't they focus too much on trying to help the person in front of them feel better rather than get better absolutely if that's a useful distinction it is certainly certainly in our industry it's uh, as, as pertinent as any yeah that you you know you can you can start to collude with people's anxiety it's, yeah. it's very you know anxiety is very infectious mm. um people start to talk talk to you about how anxious they are then intuitively if you're kind of a nice person you know you don't want to push them you don't want to put them in a situation where they experience lots of anxiety yeah um but i think i would want to be quite clear about this that if you start to um introduce psychological aspects into into the work it's not going to make it easier it's going to make it more complex absolutely Um, but and perhaps less comfortable for the patient but I think ultimately beneficial in terms of being more more effective and and, and a more rounded piece of work I'm, and I, I am being a very difficult devil's advocate when I say this is there is this argument of, of getting people just why why are we doing this why are we going around it this way um, we should just tell them to man up for example and, and it, it is petty uh, I agree uh, but it, but it is it is out there to some degree and, and do, you, do you think that that's a society thing certainly something that's present in the media there isn't a lot of respect sometimes for these things that we've discussed no I, th- I think you're absolutely right I think there's still a real stigma around the psychological aspects of our functioning I think it's improving so I think that um, you know going back a few years I mean my, it's in, when, when I first got into psychology I was trying to explain what I was doing to my nan you know I was trying to get her to understand <laughs> what this thing was that I was yeah. you know, going to spend my whole career doing and she just didn't get it you know just didn't understand it but but you know you got to understand she she her formative years were during the you know during the war and and, and there was just a very different approach to how people um, 
dealt with adversity. But I think that over time we've become much more kind of understanding about the psychological aspects of human functioning. And, you know, that, that's much more understood now in terms of the way mental health care is approached. And I think it's becoming much more well understood in physical health care, but that will take a little bit of time you know, for that, those ideas to really kind of percolate and, and influence what happens. Mm, yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and we can only, shall we say, try and promote the good word or promote where the evidence sits and, and yeah. almost not just cross our fingers, but allow, allow for time to pass and not get disheartened by the fact that it's not embraced by um, every, every uh, newspaper, every outlet, every broadcast medium. So, no, that's a great point. And, and uh, finally, how would you direct any of our listeners to access and find out more about the topics that we've discussed and, and also do you have any shameless plugs of how people can hear from you personally there's a number of things uh, I would this is probably a shameless plug but I would, I would direct people to your earlier podcasts I think you know, over the course of two very informative hours Mike Stewart made some made an incredibly eloquent case for uh, integrating psychological elements within within physiotherapy practice. Um, you know, I I started listening to that as kind of a bit of revision for meeting with you, and I, I could not stop listening to it. I thought it was an incredible um, piece of work. And and he in there mentions lots of other places where people might want to go and look. Um, in terms of the the sort of empirical side of things. Um, there's a lot of good work gone on at Warwick. So the, if people want to look up the work of Zara Hansen and Sarah Lamb, there are some papers around the 2010 era about uh, the use of CBT uh, in a group setting yeah. uh, in, 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 in chronic pain. Um, a more recent publication is really hot off the press as a, as, a, as a book by a guy called Mark Carlson. So that's a 2014 reference. The book's called CBT for Chronic Pain and Psychological Wellbeing. The entire book is a, is just describes a treatment protocol in great depth. So it's a sort of you know, step-by-step approach to integrating uh, motivational interviewing, CBT and ACT into a, a, a treatment program for people with chronic pain. As for myself, um, you know, here at the University of Birmingham, we, we run a quite a wide programme of continuing professional development um, opportunities, so that, which includes you know basic tr- training in in CBT and, and ACT techniques. Uh, and then there's the work that I'll, that I'll continue to do with with Jared Green you know, up and down the country, offering um, you know perhaps one and two day trainings for physio, specifically targeted at physiotherapists in terms of. You know, developing their awareness of psychological intervention. So that leaves me um, and the, the opportunity to tell the listeners that we will be compiling a show notes newsletter that which will have access to some of the references that you've just mentioned, as well as some information about yourself. But finally, thank you very much for having me today. Absolute honour and pleasure to come and talk to you. And uh, I hope again we'll we'll be able to cross paths again soon. No problem. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And there we have session nine. Huge thanks to Dr. Richard Bennett for his time and to the MACP for their support. As with all of our podcasts, an hour is nowhere near enough time to cover a clinical entity as thoroughly as we'd like. So please look at the resources posted on Twitter and in our show notes newsletter for more depth and insight into today's topic. Having the chance to question experts such as Richard is a huge privilege, and so I might as well share what I think are the key take-home messages for frontline clinicians such as me. When bridging the gap between assessment and treatment, identification of a patient's readiness to engage with what you feel is necessary is vital. And for this, the evidence points us towards the use of motivational interviewing techniques and to avoid nagging patients to change or even threatening potential consequences on them, which although it's inadvertent, it does remain commonplace. When we get into comparing CBT and ACT, I could be in danger of oversimplifying things, but I am feeling brave. So if I try to give a more traditional exercise-based example that I suspect most in the MSK game would be pretty comfortable with, if as a physio you assess what you deem to be a dysfunctional or suboptimal movement pattern, your clinical reasoning might lead you to trying to improve or at least change it. If you replace the movement with thoughts and beliefs, then this could be considered a CBT-like technique. Alternatively, your reasoning might lead you to training the patient to improve their tolerance and capacity for said movement. If you help them to understand that they move that way as an individual and that it needn't be a problem. 
hopefully I haven't lost you if I was to suggest that ACT is like this, but for psychology. And as in my movement example, it is usually a combination of both. So we're better off embracing both. And so for the plugs, if you were to follow at CBT underscore UOB for tweets from Richard's department, at Physio MACP for debate and discussion around all things MSK, and of course I'm at Choose underscore Health with the Whittier podcast team tweeting from at TPM podcast. A final plug is for the MACP conference on October the 25th, which this year is on exercise rehab and patient engagement. Sign up online, macpweb.org, and I shall leave you with Richard, who's going to see us out. So you've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing Physio Matters because Physio Matters. Less Gorgon, more Zola. <laughs>